Hey everyone, welcome to The Negotiators, a production of Doha Debates and Foreign Policy. I'm your host, Jen Williams. Over the past month, violence between Israelis and Palestinians has reached staggering levels. More than 1,400 Israelis have been killed, the vast majority of them in a Hamas attack on October 7th. Most were civilians. Hamas also took more than 200 Israeli and foreign nationals hostage in that attack. Israel's subsequent bombardment and invasion of Gaza have killed more than 9,000 Palestinians so far, also mostly civilians. And the war is still ongoing. Over the years, Israeli and Palestinian leaders have tried again and again to negotiate a peace deal. Many smart people involved in the mediation efforts believed an agreement was in reach. So why did they fail? To answer that, we're going to look at one initiative to solve the Israeli-Palestinian conflict that circulated some 20 years ago. Peace proposals often have lofty names and inspirational text, but after watching other peace efforts give way to violence, the framers kept it simple. They called it the roadmap. It was put forward in 2003 by Denmark, and it called for a Palestinian state within two years, along with security assurances for Israel. The roadmap was embraced by four important parties, the United Nations, the European Union, Russia, and the United States, a group that came to be known as the Quartet. With that broad backing, the roadmap seemed to have more potential than previous initiatives. To understand what happened, we're going to hear from Peter Bartu. He was a political advisor for the UN mediation team that worked on the roadmap with the Israelis and Palestinians. Bartu is from Australia. You'll hear it in the accent. He was an officer in the Australian military and later served in the foreign ministry and the prime minister's department. In between, he worked in conflict zones around the world, including Cambodia, East Timor, and the Democratic Republic of the Congo. Bartu moved to Jerusalem for the assignment during the Second Palestinian Uprising, known as the Second Intifada. His boss was Tarje Rod Larsen, a Norwegian diplomat who served as the UN envoy in the region. If you're steeped in Middle East diplomacy, his name might sound familiar. A decade earlier, Rod Larson helped Israelis and Palestinians negotiate the Oslo Peace Accords. Okay, just two more things to keep in mind. Yasser Arafat was the Palestinian president at the time. You'll hear his name come up. And Ariel Sharon was the prime minister of Israel. Okay, I'm going to let Bartu take it from here. When I was working at the Australian Prime Minister's Department, I'd been there for about a year and... The UN essentially recruited me to come and work on Israel-Palestine to join Terry Road Larson's team at a time when the Second Intifada was just uh, starting to really uh, break out, you know, what had been brewing hostilities between both communities at that time. I think the Bush administration was acting in quite good faith, but all of this changes with the circumstances of 9-11. Obviously, America is reeling in this context, and Ariel Sharon does quite a good job of pointing out to the Americans that what's happening to the Israelis in the context of the Second Intifada is very similar to their 9-11 experiences. And it's at this point that the violence just begins to escalate. Israel appears to have a freer hand to do whatever it wants to do, and the Palestinian frequency and intensity of uh, attacks inside Israel and across the West Bank and in the Gaza Strip where the settlements there begin to increase. So I literally arrive into Jerusalem two weeks after 9-11. I could not have arrived at a worse possible time in that particular context. 
The job description essentially was first and foremost to be Larson's key liaison with the Israeli authorities to work with the Israeli Defence Force, the Israeli intelligence services, the political parties to, you know, trying to craft different solutions to the rapidly escalating challenges that everyone was facing there on the ground. The idea is that being an Australian, you'd be coming with a more neutral position and background to the issues at hand and could be palatable to the Israelis and the Palestinians. You know, sometimes a fresh pair of eyes is helpful on particular circumstances. The move was quite complicated. I was married with three children who would eventually join me in Jerusalem for the assignment, but I spent the first few months getting set up, getting established, and getting very busy in the work mode. One of the limitations around American diplomacy at that particular time is that the American embassy officials in Tel Aviv deal exclusively with the Israelis. The American diplomatic officials in Jerusalem in the consulate deal exclusively with the Palestinians, and they're not allowed to talk to each other. Their reports go in silo fashion back to Washington, D.C., and then direction comes down from D.C. And that's a function of you know, American domestic politics and also how they navigate this question. And as the violence escalated, there are further constraints where the Americans can't travel throughout the West Bank for security reasons, nor into the Gaza Strip. So what this does, it actually opens up a space for our office where we could, you know, in the morning be seeing Yasser Arafat, at lunchtime be in Jerusalem, in the afternoon in Tel Aviv and Kiryat with the Israeli Defence Force, and then in the evening in Gaza, and then back up to Jerusalem at 11 o'clock at night, trying to work on the next key issues at hand. So we were in quite a unique role in moving between all of the parties. It was pretty fast-paced. You would be essentially lurching from crisis to crisis. You know, they're not talking to each other, their cooperative mechanisms are broken down, they're screaming at each other. So you can't be a wallflower in those circumstances. Some of the officers I dealt with directly were brusque, hardened, but at the same time, they're also in uncharted waters. When we look at the fighting throughout the Second Intifada, that had never happened before at that scale probably not since 1948, I think even 67, in terms of Israeli-Palestinian interactions, wasn't as intense. And you could be quite tough with the Israelis. I mean, they expected that. So we were immediately useful at the crisis level. So essentially, 2002, as we get into February, March, the violence starts to really escalate. I was living in Jerusalem and it became almost a routine where every Shabbat, which runs from Friday through Saturday, there would be a suicide attack coming out of the West Bank into Jerusalem or into Israel proper. And you would be sitting around at home in the evening and you would hear these bombs go off and you would know immediately, you could feel the shock waves even if they were a mile or two away. Conversely, you know, I'd be down in the Gaza Strip and Israeli airstrikes would try and hit Hamas targets, sometimes Palestinian security institutions, and you'd feel the kinetic energy rippling through the Gaza Strip. And when these attacks were close, they could throw you across the room. 
So it was a very physical and palpable sensation. Such was the intensity of this conflict at that time. Everyone's watching the newsfeed, everyone's watching television, everyone's listening to the radio, everyone's hearing the latest bad news. And it's a, a really distinct phenomena when you see two communities getting ready for war. And I'd seen it unfold in Cambodia and I'd seen it unfold in East Timor and I'd seen it unfolding in Eastern DRC. You know that war is coming, that the prospects for de-escalation have been reduced dramatically. And then during Pesach or the Passover, you have this huge, very effective suicide attack where Jewish families have gathered to celebrate in a hotel. And I forget the number of casualties from the attack, but it sent shockwaves. Immediately, as soon as the uh, attack had happened, was receiving phone calls from Israelis in the security establishment, in the IDF, and also from Israeli families, very upset. And they're cursing and swearing. You know, you can really feel their anger. And uh, that was the turning point. After the Passover suicide bombing, the Israeli Defence Force goes in very heavy-handed into all of the key West Bank towns. And one of the initial focuses is the town of Janine, which from where a number of suicide bombers have come into Israel, but at the same time where up to about 50, 60 Palestinians had been killed prior to the first suicide bomber coming from there. So when the Israeli Defence Force goes in, lay siege to the town, the International Committee for the Red Cross is trying to get ambulances into the hospital to get cadavers out of the war zone so they can be buried while the fighting continues. And the Israeli Defence Force wasn't letting them in. So I made a demarche through the Foreign Ministry and said, this is an international obligation, you have to allow this. And so we had to broker and I had to accompany the ICRC ambulances into Janine during the fighting so they could do their work and ended up spending several days throughout the battle in and out of the conflict zone. These kind of very exhaustive, exhausting and intense activities, you know, were what filled our days. You're trying to direct the responses in a way that minimizes civilian casualties and so forth. So because everybody's in crisis mode, it doesn't really matter whether you're Israeli, Palestinian, Australian, Norwegian, there's a leveling that happens at these times. And, you know, if you're uh, competent, you're invited back to the table. After the Battle of Janine, the fighting continues across the West Bank. The IDF comes into Nablus, into Ramallah, into Bethlehem. Tanks roll in. Uh, Yasser Arafat is quarantined inside the Makata, can't get out. And the IDF is not only prosecuting what it called its war on terror, but it was also essentially destroying a lot of the Palestinian institutions that had been established under the Oslo Accords. A lot of international assistance had gone into helping build up those institutions, both technical advice and monetary and so forth. And what was alarming to 
most of the countries who were engaged in that process was to see this sort of five years of institution building being ripped apart in front of their eyes. So Zippy Livni, who at that time was a rising star in the Likud party under Ariel Sharon, she would later become the Justice Minister and leader of Kadima uh, several years later. But at that time, she's a young, aspiring political protege of Ariel Sharon. So in the context of very strong criticism of the Israeli military and government for what they were doing, Ariel Sharon sent Zippy Livni to meet with all of the ambassador corps in Tel Aviv to explain clearly what they were up to and what their aims and objectives were. And I represented the United Nations and we had all of the ambassadors from Tel Aviv at the meeting. What's striking at this particular time is the complete breakdown and discord between Zippy Livni and the ambassadors represented there. And it really sticks in my mind is the German ambassador pounding the table in anger where he's deeply unhappy with Zippy Livni's explanations about what's happening to Palestinian buildings and you know, they're ripping out computers and so forth. And it's just so, you know, for obvious reasons, if there's any criticism of Israel by the Germans, it's done behind the scenes. But in this case, the anger was quite palpable. The exact words were, what is the legal framework in which you're prosecuting this war on terror? What you're doing is disproportionate and inappropriate. So it was a very tough meeting for her, but symptomatic of the depth and lack of understanding of pretty much all of the stakeholders of what each other were doing at that particular time. So we're in a situation in, in mid-2002 of, you know, where is this going? Where does it end? What comes next? And initially, all uh, efforts are really trying to nail down a ceasefire. And there are a number of false attempts at trying to do that. Building in the background is an initiative which comes out of, of all places, Denmark, which is at that time the rotating chair of the European Union. And they put on the table this idea of coming out of what is seen as you know the carnage of the Second Intifada to come up with a very clear roadmap as to how this conflict might end. And so there's a process by which this document is developed. It's about seven pages long and puts it all in a coherent fashion with distinct phases that would lead to a two-state solution within two or three years. What happens in parallel is that you have a new diplomatic grouping called the Quartet, which brings together the UN, the European Union, Russia and the United States. And it's this idea that a new approach is required here where it's not just the United States dictating the terms by which the conflict should be addressed, engaged with, and then resolved. So this quartet picks up the roadmap drafts, and our office representing the UN works on the editing and the meeting with the United States and the Russians and so forth on a regular basis to flesh this out into uh, something concrete. So this process extends through to the end of 2002 and into 2003, but it's very clear that there are one major obstacle to this, which is that the Israeli government under Ariel Sharon and the Bush administration are very unambiguous, that they will not support the roadmap as long as Yasser Arafat remains in power, and that Palestinian leadership has to change. 
without Yasser Arafat stepping down, there will be no roadmap. More about the roadmap after the break. Welcome back to The Negotiators, a production of Doha Debates and Foreign Policy. I'm Jen Williams. Before the break, Bartu was trying to nudge Israelis and Palestinians toward a ceasefire. Now his mission changes. With a peace initiative on the table, his job is to get the two sides on board. The first challenge is that the Israelis see Yasser Arafat as the instigator of the violence in the Second Intifada, so they want him to step down. But there's also another complication brewing. The United States is gearing up for the invasion of Iraq. Back to Bartu. So what's also happening in the background, of course, is that the United States, through the end of 2002, privately, the Bush administration has taken the decision that it will at some point invade Iraq. And that's another dimension that's weighing heavily on circumstances in Israel-Palestine. What's important about the Iraq invasion is that Tony Blair, who was the first Western leader to fly to Congress after 9-11 and has marked lockstep with the Americans, offering them full support, and however they respond to those attacks, has asked the Bush administration that in exchange for his support for the coalition of the willing in the Iraq invasion, that the quartet roadmap needs to be implemented, put on the table, and so forth. So you have these two issues that have to be resolved. So there's that choreography of the diplomatic process that has to play out. My take on this is that essentially Washington doesn't really have the bandwidth for building the coalition of the willing for the invasion of Iraq, uh, while also trying to resolve the Israeli-Palestinian conflict once and for all. But they're drawn, they're forced down that path because of Blair's insistence that one can't be addressed without the other. The first part of the puzzle, though, in all of this is that nothing's going to move unless Yasser Arafat steps down. And how this comes together in the first instance is when Colin Powell in February 2003 what you will see gives a presentation at the UN Security Council disturbing patterns of behavior that tries to draw links between Saddam Hussein and Sar al-Sunnah Saddam Hussein and his regime a you know, terrorist organization and then also provides evidence of chemical weapons and so forth he's trying to make the case for a second UN resolution that would authorize the war on the 19th of March 2003 sealing their efforts to produce more weapons of mass destruction. In this particular moment, Larson, who, from his Oslo experience and so forth, has been talking to Arafat at length, saying that he needs to step aside on behalf of his people to allow the roadmap to proceed. And what he's able to convince Arafat of is that if Arafat is able to do this, the best time to do this is uh, on the morning of Colin Powell's address at the UN Security Council, probably the most watched diplomatic moment of the 21st century. Yasser Arafat resigning and stepping down and passing over the reins to Mahmoud Abbas, which would fulfill one of the conditions for the roadmap to proceed. So to everybody's surprise, Arafat finally 
after months of uh, not agreeing to step down, does so, and the press conference occurs, and so one of the roadblocks is removed for the roadmap to proceed. Powell's address at the Security Council fails to convince enough members of the Security Council for that second resolution, and the invasion proceeds. And then in April, after that, Tony Blair and George Bush appear in the Rose Garden in the White House in Washington, D.C., and formally launch the roadmap process, and so it begins. I think there was a sense that if the United States didn't actually invest in trying to resolve the Israeli-Palestinian conflict and just proceeded unilaterally with the invasion of Iraq, that it could inflame regional tensions even more. So they had to be seen to be more even-handed. And so there's a genuine security argument internally within American circles that they've got to address both. So I think Blair's role in this should receive the attention it deserves, but it's also more broad consensus that without dealing with Israel-Palestine as well as Iraq, that you could inflict more harm. The Palestinians, you know, they were basically very supportive of the roadmap, a document that actually spelled out a two-state solution by 2005. This was actually a good outcome out of this incredibly brutal, if short, war between the two. But one could not say that about Hamas at that time, though. The Israelis were deeply suspicious of the roadmap for a range of reasons. The first was the idea of a process over which they would not have full control, had active involvement of the EU, the Russians and the United Nations, was uh, anathema to them, to put it mildly. The idea of extracting settlements out of the West Bank and sharing Jerusalem as the capital and then removing settlements out of Gaza was going to be a real challenge. But at the same time, the shock of the Second Intifada created a moment, however briefly, where new ideas could be considered. After the presentation by Blair and Bush of the roadmap, this gets negotiated between a number of Israelis and Palestinians. But what's also happening very quickly on the Iraq scene is, of course, that's going south rapidly. The Americans have realised they're not fully prepared for what the occupation of Iraq actually means and entails. So they're getting distracted fast. And what eventually emerged was that the Bush administration basically tried to reclaim complete control of roadmap implementation and monitoring and evaluation. And they did so by appointing a special envoy, Ambassador John Wolfe, who came out to Jerusalem, set up his own team, and went ahead with roadmap implementation with a very, very heavy accent on security, understandably, but also on economic incentives that would revitalise the Palestinian economy. The brief moment of broadening the number of stakeholders was essentially closing by the end of 2003. There's uh, a series of three suicide bombing attacks by Hamas that happened through middle and late 2003. And at this point, John Wolfe departs Jerusalem and never returns. Basically, there's a zero-tolerance policy for this kind of terrorism and attacks at this time, and the Americans pull back from implementation. Looking back in hindsight and so forth, how do you quarantine or protect from spoilers in these kind of circumstances? How do you have a more robust engagement? 
I think it is an entirely plausible interpretation, right, that having got what they wanted in terms of a coalition of the willing to help with the invasion of Iraq, that the Americans pulled back. I think there were elements of this that were altruistic. There was a security argument to do it, to protect your flanks, as it were, in the region as a whole, that you're being balanced. It's not just about Iraq. But for sure, focusing on two big things is a lot more difficult than just one big thing. So you factor in the suicide bombings, I mean, I think I can understand fairly human reasons why they would pull back. But I think it was a mistake. I left working for the United Nations at the end of 2003, in December. I'd always set myself a two-year assignment and I had something else to move on to. But I distinctly recall leaving that assignment, feeling that actually it was impossible to anticipate progress in those circumstances. So I think it's proven to be true. That's Peter Bartu describing his work on the roadmap two decades ago. But there's one more part I want to play for you. As the roadmap was becoming less relevant, Prime Minister Ariel Sharon introduced his own initiative, a unilateral Israeli withdrawal from the Gaza Strip. He called it the Disengagement Plan. The plan would include the evacuation of thousands of Israeli settlers from Gaza. But it was unilateral. There were no negotiations with the Palestinians about it. Back to Bartu. Larson had been talking with the Israelis through late 2003 into 2004 about, you know, the need to do something. Gaza, with 8,000 settlers in it, holding down at the time 1.3 million Palestinians, lateral transport routes into the settlements whenever there was a security incident would remain open for the settlers but would close the north-south routes for Palestinians. So it was pretty egregious where one community is getting its security by depriving the other community of its security. And so I think Sharon uh, understood that a major gesture is required here. I think it does indeed take a lot of courage on Sharon's side, but it's also fairly clear from the Sharon government side in that infamous quote of one of his advisors, the Gaza disengagement will be applying formaldehyde to the quartet roadmap. You know, we'll get out of Gaza and we won't really have to do anything further. In that context, the US steps up. It insists that the Israelis withdraw four settlements from the Northwest Bank so that Gaza disengagement isn't seen as Gaza first and Gaza last, that in fact this is tied to the two-state solution, it's tied to the roadmap. But the Sharon Initiative basically kills the roadmap. Peter Bartu served on the UN team that helped mediate the Roadmap Peace Initiative between Israelis and Palestinians. He's now a senior research scholar at the UC Berkeley Center for Middle Eastern Studies and a lecturer in the Global Studies Program. The Negotiators is a partnership between Doha Debates and Foreign Policy. Our production team includes Rob Sachs, Ashley Westerman, Rosie Julin, Claudia Tatey, Jafit Weeks, Jigar Mehta, I'm Jadatala and Dan Efron. Laura Rosprautellum is the show's senior producer. Thanks to Nella Farhidayat, Govinda Clayton, and James Wally for helping create the show. 
Foreign Policy is a magazine of news and ideas from around the world. And we encourage you to subscribe. Just go to foreignpolicy.com slash subscribe. Doha Debates is a production of Qatar Foundation, where the most urgent issues of our time are discussed and debated. Tune in at dohadebates.com. Next week on the show, negotiators try to mediate an end to the conflict in Yemen, where years of fighting have created a humanitarian crisis for millions of civilians. The guy who was the chef negotiator of the Houthis, or the head of negotiation committee on this, is someone I used to read his poetry in high school. He's my age. We used to exchange poetry on online forums. He's a, a horrible Houthi today, but he's a fantastic poet. That's next week on The Negotiators. I'm Jen Williams.